John 15, 18 through 16, 4. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the, wor the word that I said to you, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will persecute you also. If they kept my word, then they will keep yours also. But all these things that they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, who will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray together as we stand. Almighty Father, uh, we ask now that you will uh, sharpen our minds. Um, grant us to ask the questions uh, that are helpful to ask. Grant us... Um, to hear what it is uh, that you would have us hear. Keep me from saying stupid things. Keep us always hearing your true things. And do whatever it takes in our hearts to shape us to be more like Jesus uh, and to hear him, to receive him, to trust him. Uh, and, uh, and Lord, will you deal also with our, with our uh, objections? Uh, with the things that don't make sense to us yet, um, you're good at that. And I thank you that you're, you're so good at that. So come and, and do all that needs to be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you can have a seat. Um, and if you would, please turn back to page 9, um, that long reading from the Gospel of John. It spans both the end of chapter 15 and the beginning of chapter 16. We're going to be looking at that uh, passage for two weeks. Um, one of the uh, surprising things, I, I find it surprising. Do you, do you find it surprising how much Jesus talks about hate in that reading? Did you notice that? If the world hates you, remember it hated me first. Um, it's interesting, remember that this is Jesus, we're picking up the story every single week, um, just a couple hours before Jesus is arrested. These are the last, uh, this is the last set of teaching that Jesus gets with his disciples, his closest inner circle, right before he goes uh, to the cross, and so he's only talking about the most important things, and it's fascinating, surprising to me a bit, that he spends so much time in these last precious moments with his disciples saying, expect to experience religiously motivated hatred. 
Um, it's a remarkable thing. You know, Christianity uh, was birthed out of an experience of uh, religiously motivated hatred, right? The cross. Isn't that what the cross is? Among many other things. In the history of Christianity, uh, the, Christi the disciples of Jesus are very often, they have been at their best when they have been pressurized under the experience of being hated unjustly. But then we all know also, or at least if you've spent any time in church history, we also know that there's this tragic story of people who claim Christ, claim to be on Jesus' team, and nevertheless end up being perpetrators of religious hatred towards others. And so right here, um, minutes, no, hours, before Jesus goes to the cross and is arrested, and all of that happens, Jesus spends time with his disciples, looking them in the eye and saying, um, we need to talk about how you're going to respond uh, when, when people shame you for belonging to me, when people uh, uh, discredit you, when people uh, uh, just sneer, when, when people treat you badly because you're Christians. We need to talk about that, Jesus says. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, I want to show you in this passage, we're going to pick it up again next week, but I want to show you in this passage that Jesus does at least three things. He says, uh, disciples, you need to shift your expectations. What is it that you expect to happen? You need to change those. Expectations. Secondly, um, he teaches the disciples about the deep root causes of uh, religiously motivated hatred. Uh, and they may be surprising. And then thirdly, he does all of that because he wants to build us to be resilient disciples when we face difficulty. All right, expectations, the root causes of religiously motivated hatred, and then finally, all of it is to build us into resilient disciples who are at our very best when people treat us very, very badly. Let me show you. Take, take a look at verse 18. Um, Jesus says, if the world hates you, disciples, keep in mind, does this, is this supposed to make them feel better, that it hated me before it hated you. Um, now, again, uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples right before he goes to the cross, and so he's modifying their expectations. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, when the disciples, you know, first joined up with the Messiah's team, Jesus' team, when they first joined up with Jesus, they didn't expect the Messiah to be hated. They didn't expect that the Messiah would be rejected by such a large percentage. They didn't expect, they certainly didn't expect that the Messiah would be executed, right? What did they expect? They expected that the Messiah was going to win big. That was kind of the point, right? I mean, I suppose maybe they expected Rome to uh, oppose Jesus a bit, um, but they expected that to be just the precursor to a big win for the Messiah. Big victory. And not only that, the disciples uh, signed up to be on the Messiah's team because they expected him to win, but they also expected to join in with that big win. They expected to be big winners as well. Now, think with me and enter into the disciples' minds, if you can, for just a minute. If, thou, if those are your expectations, if you expect uh, a big win 
by joining the Messiah's team. What are you going to be thinking when you see to your absolute horror that the Messiah whom you have thrown your lot in with, when you see that Messiah killed, executed, murdered? You're going to think that he lost big, right? Um, dead Messiahs are losers, aren't they? In their thinking? And then, what are you going to think when you experience, because you're associated with the Messiah, what are you going to um, think when you experience uh, shame, opposition, marginalization, when people end up hating you, or maybe just pass you by, ignore you, discredit you? You're going to think, if you were expecting a big win, you're going to, you're going to, uh, you're going to think that you're on the losing team, aren't you? Now, keep that in mind. Look at verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 1. Toward the end of the reading, Jesus says, uh, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. Now, here, here's part of what Jesus' agenda is. Jesus knows that the disciples are going to fall away or go astray if they keep those expectations that they have been bringing to the table to this point. And therefore, Jesus has to change those expectations. Now, let's hit the pause button for just a quick second. Um, a lot of Christians have an unspoken expectation. It's always unspoken. An unspoken expectation that, um, see if you can identify with this, that if we do everything right, if we really play our cards right, that people around us are going to like us a lot. They're, they're, they're going to they're think well of us. And um, the difficulty is that that need to be liked as a Christian. Like, if we think that, that following Jesus is going to be part of what, you know, just to use a crass phrase, makes us popular. Isn't that a song in Wicked? Popular. It's going to be popular. Anyways, I'm not going to sing, sing it right now. That's what they just did. But... Um, um, if that's what we're thinking, then the problem is um, it's just going to kill our capacity to be resilient as disciples of Jesus through opposition and difficulty. Because here's what will happen. Um, so I follow Jesus, right? I, I, I think I'm on his team. And then I experience opposition that I wasn't expecting. And I'm not really resilient in the face of being uh, shamed or pressurized because I belong to Jesus. And therefore, I will feel an, an urgent need to resolve the tension that I experience relationally, right? I, I, I'll want to resolve the tension so that the other person thinks well of me. And, and I'll do that usually in one of two ways. Either... I'll modify Jesus' teachings just a little bit. I'll find the, the area of Jesus' teaching where there's the greatest amount of tension with um, the, the other person who's, who's engaging me. Um, I'll find that area of greatest tension, and then I'll just turn it down in the hopes that they'll conclude that, um, well, okay, you're a Christian, but at least you're not that kind of Christian. I'll either do that or... or I'll dig in my heels and I'll grit my teeth and I'll look them right in the eye and I will make a virtue of the conflict and I'll, I'll respond to their opposition with anger. <laughs> I didn't expect that to happen, but it worked quite well. Um, do you know what I mean? I'll, I'll make it, I'll, 
I'll come right back at him, and I'll think I'm doing great. Now, here's, here's the problem. Neither of those responses fit Jesus well. And both of them are subtle ways of going astray, falling away, as Jesus says in verse 1. Instead, Jesus wants us to be resilient. So, how do we become resilient? Well, part of it is we need to have a deeper understanding of the, the nature of religious, religiously motivated hatred. Follow me. Look at verse 8 again. 18, rather. If the world hates you, Jesus says, keep in mind that it hated me before it hated you. Okay, keep that in your mind. Then skip to verse 23. Verse 23 says, he who hates me, Jesus, hates my father as well. Now, pause. A couple questions. Who is doing the hating in this passage? And why are they doing the hating? Okay, first, who is doing the hating? Well, Jesus says, the world. The world. Now, when Jesus says the world, uh, very often, particularly in the Gospel of John, the, the word world doesn't mean, or at least it doesn't always mean, the whole cosmos. It doesn't mean, the, the, it doesn't mean Earth. It doesn't mean um, the whole created universe. What it means, usually, often, at least in this context, is it means uh, uh, humanity in opposition to God and his purposes. But there's a twist. Look. Look back at it. Later on, we find out that the world that Jesus is talking about here is very religious. Did you catch that? They'll throw you out of the synagogues. Jesus is not talking about, primarily about, irreligious secular world as we sometimes might think of it. Jesus is talking about highly religious people who nevertheless hate the disciples. Now, why in the world would highly religious people hate the disciples? Well, thank you for asking that. Like I said, I've said before, you always ask good questions right at the right time. Verse 23 and verse 21. They hate the disciples, Jesus says, because they hate Jesus. They hate Jesus because they hate the Father. And that's the key. According to Jesus... Religious hatred is always subtle hatred towards God. What? Seriously? Yes, seriously. You can see it right the way through the entirety of Scripture. Let me give you some backstory. Do you remember the, um, the story of Cain and Abel? Slightly less well-known story right at the beginning of the Bible. Okay, um, if, just to review, uh, Adam and Eve... In, in, in uh, Genesis uh, chapter uh, 3 and 4, they, they have two sons. Cain is the older, Abel is younger. Now, both Cain and Abel are very religious. They both sacrifice to God, that is to say, they both worship God. Outwardly, these two brothers are very, very similar, but inwardly, they're very different, they're opposites. What's different? Well, Abel, the younger brother, worshipped God because he loved God. Pretty straightforward. Cain, older brother, however, worshipped, not because really he loved God, but because he wanted to use God. For Cain, uh, religion was a little bit like a contract. I'll worship you, God, if you bless me. Now, the problem is God 
uh, throughout the Bible never relates to us really in a contractual sort of way. And so God didn't feel particularly obligated. God did not bless him. And Cain responds with rage, rage towards God. See, what we find out is right at the very beginning of the Bible, Cain's religion, which was outwardly devout, was camouflage that hid deep-seated hatred toward God. The problem is, it's hard to pour out your hatred towards God. It's hard to kill him. So, where does Cain's anger and hatred towards God erupt? It erupts towards his brother. And he murders his brother. Now, follow the pattern. Cain hated his brother because deep down, Cain hated his brother's God. And all of that was cloaked by apparent religion. It's very interesting. The Bible starts analyzing religiously motivated hatred on like page three of most Bibles. At least of my, my Bible. I don't know what page it is in yours. But. And I don't know any other book that deals with uh, religiously motivated hatred so consistently and so uh, deeply from at the very beginning. All right, keep this in your mind and bring it back to Jesus. Because all through Jesus' ministry, he is slamming up against religious leaders. He's just in constant conflict with religious leaders. You've noticed that, haven't you? And the thing is, the religious leaders that hate Jesus, they are just like Cain. Outwardly, they're religious. Very religious. Um, clergy, clergy are very religious. Dare I say we're good at it. Outwardly, they were very religious, but inwardly, they were just like Cain. They didn't really love God. They thought they did, but they were using God. It was like a contract. God, I'll do my bit. I'll worship you, but you'd better do your bit too. You better bless me and stuff. And that was their inner logic. The problem is, Jesus just doesn't play along. And therefore, Jesus is always infuriating them. He's infuriating them because he's always calling their bluff. So God didn't play along with Cain and his contractual approach to a relationship with God. And Jesus never played along with the religious leaders in their contractual approach to the relationship with God. And therefore, they just blew up at Jesus just like Cain did. And their explosive hatred was the outward expression of an inward hatred toward God. And they'd punch you in the face if you ever told them that. And it's not just that they needed ed more education. So, right? Like, like it's tempting to think, oh, you know what? They just needed better teaching. Well, look at verse 22. Verse 22 says, they've heard my teaching, Jesus says. Verse 24 says, they'd seen the miracles of Jesus. Have you ever thought that your faith would be stronger if you'd actually witnessed Jesus' miracles? They did. And yet, it still had not overcome the best religious education in the history of the universe they had, right, at the feet of Jesus. But nevertheless, it hadn't overcome their hate-filled heart. You know, um, Jesus' message is never just what we all really need is more education or more morality or more religion. It's never, it, you can't boil it down to that. 
um, those things are important. But classical Christianity always says, um, if you reduce it to that, you'll end up with something that is hopelessly simplistic. Hopelessly simplistic. It's not that those things are not important. They are important, but they're hopelessly simplistic because all the best that they can do is manage your out exterior, but they cannot get into the core of our being and change who we are from the inside out. We need a deep change at the core of who we are. We need a new heart. We need a heart that instead of being orientated towards hating God is orientated toward loving God. How do you get that? Where does that come from? Look at verse 19. Jesus says, If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that's why the world hates you. Now, notice. This is super important. The disciples, Jesus says, used to be part of the world. And that's important because it means that the disciples themselves used to be just like Cain. Uh, Peter, in a couple hours, is going to deny Jesus a few times. Uh, Judas is right now in the process of, of uh, betraying Jesus, so it, it appears that there's a little bit of Cainishness left in them, even at the moment. However, it's crucial to understand that the disciples themselves start out very much like the people who put Jesus to death. There's something very challenging here because, I don't know about you, but I expect to come to verse 19, and I, if I was writing it, which we should all be glad that I didn't write the Bible, if I were writing it, it'd say something like this. Disciples, you're not of the world because you know better, don't you? Disciples, you're not of the world because deep down you're a loving person who would never hate anybody. That's why I chose you. You're the best of the best. That's what college presidents tell freshmen. <laughs> Jesus will never say that to you. The disciples were Cain-like God-haters, hidden behind a thin religious veneer. Do you know what changed them? Jesus chose them. Why did Jesus choose them? I have no idea. I don't think they did either. Did they? But nevertheless, Jesus chose them. He chose them precisely when hate still ruled their hearts. But then watch. Watch how that changes the logic of religion. So Cain-like religion, the logic kind of goes like this. Um, God, I'll do my bit so long as you do your bit. It's a contract. And the, part of the problem with it is it leaves us with a bunch of control. We've got leverage over God, or at least we imagine we do. But the whole system, of, uh, the whole system is completely turned on its head by Jesus because Jesus chooses the disciples when their best religion was thinly veiled hatred towards God. And therefore, the whole logic of religion is transformed. Instead of, I'll do my bit, God, if you do your bit, it's something totally different. The logic becomes, I bring nothing to this relationship but my guilt, Jesus. And Jesus, you loved me, and 
for reasons I do not know. And Jesus, your love for me went to the extreme. Jesus, you were killed by the same religious hatred that is in some ways resident within my own heart. Lord Jesus, it was my hatred that really deserved death. But you voluntarily became my substitute. And therefore, up upon the cross, you are suffering the death that my thinly veiled religious but deeply hateful heart deserves. And there as I look upon you, Lord Jesus, upon the cross, I see ineffable love given to me, given to be my name so that the guilty one, me, can go free. Now, can you see the difference between the inner logic of false religion, contract, contractualism, and the inner logic of grace, Jesus' religion? The inner, religion of, or the inner logic of false religion leads us to, to, to ultimately to kind of hate God and hate other people because God never does what we tell him to do. But the inner logic of Jesus uh, leads us to love God and love others because Jesus gave absolutely everything he is for us when we didn't deserve it and therefore it overturns our hearts and we want to give everything that we are back to him even though it costs us. And here's the thing, the more that becomes real for you, the more, like, the more that becomes not theory, but like vividly real for you by name, the more it'll transform how you respond to people when they shame you, when they hate you, when they just kind of dismiss you with a sneer. Because it'll do a number of things. The first thing it'll, it'll do is, is when Jesus is vividly real to you, you won't be that surprised when people kind of dismiss you because you belong to Christ. You won't be surprised on, on the one hand because Jesus told you it was coming. But, but you also won't be surprised because you know your own heart. And you know that we know that we used to hate God. And we know that we have hate towards other people. We're good at hiding it but it doesn't mean it's not there. And therefore, we won't surpri be surprised when we see it in others. We won't be taught, like, we won't kind of, like, dismiss it like it's no big deal. No, goodness, no. But we won't be surprised by it. We, on, the first, on the one hand, we won't be surprised by it. But secondly, we'll end up more resilient as disciples because when we experience that pressure of people say, uh, you know, because we belong to Jesus, when we feel that shame or we feel people disliking us or just kind of passing us by, we'll be resilient because we won't be tempted to modify Jesus' teaching because Jesus earned, his, earned our loyalty by giving himself for us. And when the cross is clear to you, you'll, you'll know that your loyalty is to Christ and therefore you won't be as tempted to modify his teachings. But on the other hand, you also won't be tempted to respond back in anger. Because you'll know that the other person's hatred is not really about us. It's really about God. It's really about Christ. 
And so instead of being reactionary and angry in response, we can respond with compassion and kindness and gentleness because that's exactly how Jesus treated us when we hated him. See, here's the thing. This is why Christians, when we're real Christians who have really been transformed by Christ from the inside out, when the pressure weighs down upon us, that's often when you see the full-bodied beauty of being a child of God watching the disciples of Jesus respond reflexively in love towards the very people who are pouring out hatred towards them. And friends, that's what we have to be. Because anything else is just a waste of time and a tragedy and a travesty of our Lord who gave his life for us. We won't be surprised. We'll be resilient. But then, finally, this is the last, we'll surrender the hatred that remains in our hearts will surrender it to Christ. Because the closer you get to Jesus Christ, the more you'll, you'll notice the little bits of anger that still kind of hang on in your heart. Little bits of hate that still hang on. Because come on, we enjoy hating our cultural opponents, don't we? And when you find little remnants of hate within your heart, that means that deeper down, there's still subtle hatred towards God, one way or the other. And if you belong to Jesus, then you will be wounded with grief when you see that in your heart. Wounded with grief because how could we hate a God who chose us by his kindness and not by our merit? But it's still there. And so, friends, we surrender that to the cross. The cross of Christ is not just how you get into the church. The cross of Christ is the only way to get on with walking with Christ. And as you surrender that to the cross of Christ, it will neutralize hate within your heart because nothing kills hate like the unmerited love of God being poured out upon us. Nothing melts the heart and fills it with compassion like recognizing that you are a particular object of infinite love. And so as we surrender our hatred to the cross of Christ, you will see Jesus come and he will take that hatred with which you have confessed and then he will shape it and he will nail it to the cross and then he will take it back off the cross and he will put it into your heart and you will find that it has been turned into compassion and love and kindness and joy in the face of difficulty. And that is when we'll become the best possible gift to those who right now are still repulsed by Christ. And Emmanuel, that is who we must be. And that's what we pick up next week. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Emmanuel Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Jim Saladin, the minister here. At Emmanuel, we seek to see, describe, and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of New York City, and ultimately the world. We rely on the generous giving of people like you. Consider supporting our ministries at www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.